a young perspective on hot-button issues around the world. This is The Hub. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. August the 15th marks the first National Ecology Day in China. It's all about raising public awareness and protecting the ecological environment and biodiversity as China strives to build an ecological civilization. It all started on August the 15th, 2005, when President Xi Jinping, then Secretary of Zhejiang Provincial Committee of the CPC, said that lucid waters and lush mountains are invaluable. It then became a core concept in what would become Xi Jinping's thoughts on ecological civilization. So will this National Ecology Day further galvanize ordinary people into action? What lifestyle change may be required for each and every one of us to make our planet Earth more livable and sustainable? To discuss all this, we have from Shanghai, China, Ms. Wu Changhua, China Director of Office of Jeremy Rifkin, and also Vice Chair of Governing Council of the Asia-Pacific Water Forum. And from Islamabad, Pakistan, we have Dr. Muhammad Irfan Khan, Professor and Founder of the Department of the Environmental Science and Dean of the Faculty of Sciences at the International Islamic University. Welcome to the program. Um, uh, Director Wu, let me turn to you first. Um, from raging forest fires in Hawaii right now to floods in Africa to recent record-smashing rainfall in Beijing, we've seen unexpected and sometimes extreme weather patterns hitting each and every one of us and making our lives, honestly, more difficult. So on this National Ecology Day, what will be your thoughts and your messages to our audience and to policymakers? Thank you, Wang Guan, for having me on this program. Uh, more than ever, uh, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate China's first National Ecology Day in the backdrop of the intensifying climate, environments, calamities, and the disasters. More than ever, we need, all need to be part of the solution. I have two key messages here. One, uh, we need to make the case. Make the case meaning uh, an ecological civilization is the only pathway towards successfully towards a sustainable future. And secondly, we need to hold ourselves accountable for our actions, our behavior, as well as demand for change. Uh, I think for governments, business, communities, organizations, and coming down to each and every individual, we need to hold ourselves accountable to do things to what we mean. And we made all the targets, commitments already. It is time to deliver. To, and accelerate the process to deliver the outcomes in order to really tackle or manage to survive the current climate and environmental calamities. Right, thanks for sharing with us those thoughts. Uh, Dr. Han, what would be your message on this National Ecology Day of China? Thank you very much. First of all, I, uh, the China has taken the leading initiative because the United Nations declared in 2020 the decade of ecological restoration. So it's a 10 years of uh, movements of ecological restoration. And I think that China being declaring the 15th of August as a National Ecology Day is becoming the leader towards this, uh, what you call the ecological civilization. So for me, I think what uh, my colleague has said over here is all the thing that we have to change our behavior, consumer behavior, the consumer patterns, and we have to live in harmony with the nature. That's the only message that if we can live in harmony with nature, that nature is such a beautiful thing, and that we can only do with our modified behavior. Director Wu, let me turn back to you. Some experts we've talked to recently urge people to move away from fossil fuel-powered cars. 
Uh, they also suggest that we eat less red meat, uh, the process of producing and feeding which produces methane and other polluting chemicals. What would be your advice when it comes to lifestyle change that um, we will have to make um, for each and every one of us? I think very importantly for every individual, we all need to make informed decisions. Of course, at the end of the day, you know, we are so different, diverse, you know, culturally, socially, economically, whatever. So at the end of the day, I think it's going to be in the hand of each individual to make decision. But in that process, one, you have to make informed decisions to make sure you really have the information, the data. And in particular, from the environmental impact perspective, we need to understand you know, what, what we eat, you know, what we use, uh, you know, how we move around, our mobility, transportation, uh, you know, whatever, yeah, our daily lives. We have to make sure we are consciously aware of our environmental footprints. And then, of course, in that process, hopefully somehow we'll be able to make responsible uh, you know, choices. And then there is the other side of the story, meaning if I, you know, I am conscious, I am aware of my behavior and the environmental impacts of my choices, I have to make sure there are choices on the market. So that means the government and the business need to make the decisions, investing in solutions and products. So to make sure products and service, alternative products and services are also available on the market so that you connect the dots in the end. On one side, the individuals can make conscious, you know, environmentally conscious uh, options or choices and very informed uh, decisions. But in the meantime, I have a choice, you know, you go to the market, I have that sort of products or services that can meet my daily needs. I think that would be sort of more idealistic sort of situation in order to accelerate changes. Yeah, making environmentally informed decisions that is so important. Dr. Han, what do you think uh, when it comes to cutting people's uh, daily carbon footprint? How should people prioritize their calculations and actions? I think uh, this is, again, I'm going back to the, what the director said of the choice. If you look at the theory of sustainable development that we're talking about, the civilization, that also describe the freedom of choice. But for the freedom of choice, the choosing and using the resources that is based on human development, that is again, health and education. So people, they become aware of their bad and good behavior. So cutting down the carbon footprint, your direct question over here. I think this is one thing that we have to reduce the burning of the fossil fuel. We have to devise the alternate fuel resources, alternate sources of energies like hydropower, the solar power and many other uh, alternated devices where we can reduce the carbon emission from our industrial emissions. We have we, we have to take the technological innovations along with our behavior change because it's not only the one aspect. We have to change the behavior. We have to change the consumer pattern. Then we have to use the modern technology. Then we have to take the regulatory approach. The state has to play the role in implementing the regulations. And then definitely the knowledge, the technology, the financial resources and the societal needs these four things in combination that determine the development of a resource. So when we are aware of what resource is better for us, we will be able to develop our resources to fulfill our need according to these things. Exactly. Uh, I want to talk about the Chinese economy because it is slowing down. Director Wu, uh, the, the campaign to build an ecological civilization uh, seems to be moving along the right track. But we have a problem that is a slowing Chinese economy. 
if you look at the numbers, uh, the GDP growth rate has been slowing down, especially if you compare it against the 2019 figure, the pre-COVID figure. Uh, meanwhile, the unemployment among youth um, has been hitting over 20%, which is very high, and the national authorities say they will no longer issue uh, new youth unemployment rates for those between 16 and 24. They will suspend using it. Um, so how do you see the, the efforts of growing the economy, ensuring employment on one hand, and also uh, to ensure that we're protecting our Mother Earth, cutting our uh, carbon emissions? Well, uh, that has been a historic sort of question on the table for humanity to address collectively. I think this is sort of the balance between growth and uh, uh, you know, the environmental protection has been debated over the decades. Uh, what's encouraging is that now we do have options, we have the technology capabilities, and uh, uh, you know, just a couple of examples there. For instance, in order to tackle climate change, we all know we need to accelerate a clean energy uh, transition or transformation. Uh, what is happening now, if you look at the renewable energy and the solar, wind, EV batteries, whatever you name it, uh, particularly the case made by China at this moment, and we all know the cost of renewable energies have been you know, decreasing dramatically. And uh, so what does that mean? That means actually, yes, we can uh, have clean energy option, uh, but in the meantime, it doesn't mean it's going to cost much. Very, very importantly is how you grow your economy because investing in clean technology, clean energy technology, you need to also build up infrastructure there as well. You need to build up industrial value chains. And that means you create jobs, right? And uh, so that's about the livelihoods, about the jobs, and how you grow your economy. So there are more and more cases like that, basically saying, actually, the case are made. You know, it's not just totally in conflict with each other, rather, if we can make the right decision at the top level, at the investment level, you know, in, at the society level, you get all the dots connected. That is how you grow your economy. But in the meantime, to ensure, particularly for the younger generation, they will be able to have more job opportunities on the market. And of course, hopefully somehow they will be able better uh, equipped with the skills, capabilities, expertise when they went through educational process so when they graduate, they also have all those jobs actually waiting for them. Yeah, uh, I think so, uh, I've yes. seen recent reports saying that China is exporting more EV cars to the outside world than any other country in the world. Um, sorry to cut you, Director. We will have three minutes left. Uh, Dr. Khan, um, let's put what China is doing into global context. China aims to have CO2 emissions peak before 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. That is nothing new. We've heard it. But let's put it in global perspective. Uh, this 30-year gap um, of China uh, for the same period that took the you know, European Union 71 years, they took the United States 43 years, and they took Japan 37 years. So what did they say about China's efforts and uh, the difficulties in meeting those uh, targets? You see what the figure you have quoted is absolutely right. And I can share one of my own research study particularly on industrial symbiosis, which is a process of eco-industrial park made by Chinese, the network of industries. My one of the PhD students in 2017, and she published a research paper in 2019 that says now China is leading the industrial symbiosis processes after UK and USA. So there was no country in the Asia that was having a kind of a ecological civilization score 
since 2019, China has increased its score eight percent. What you were talking about the decrease in the GDP. I think this is a transition period for a temporary pipe. When you grow towards a green economy, ultimately you will be the beneficiary after some time because this is a transition period that you have to make a trade-off between the environmental protection and conservation or your GDP growth. So the China is making very good industrial. Ecological park and eco-industrial parks development, and same is being reflected here. When we have in Pakistan and China, the CPAC, the program, we have nine economic uh, special economic zones, and each economic zone has an eco-industrial park. So this is the effort that China is not making within the China, but across all its partners for the global development under this One Belt One Road initiative. Also, talking about CPAC, Dr. Han, we know that uh, there needs to be a caretaker government. In Pakistan, the, the current、uh, government of Shahbaz Sharif、uh, might be dissolving,、uh, you know, because of the parliamentary elections taking place.、Uh, in fact, it won't take place until next year, according to latest reports.、Um, and we know that CPAC、uh, 2.0 is a much touted concept after Shahbaz Sharif took office.、Uh, do you see that happening,、uh, given the political situation in Pakistan? The Shahbaz Sharif government is already dissolved yesterday. Before today, the new prime minister, Mr. Anwarullah Kakar, has taken the oath, and he is the now prime minister. I think talking about the CPAC, it is an initiative of the national interest. So our state establishment and all the, they are committed with it. And previous government, there was some problems、uh, carrying on the project on the CPAC. But with the recent visit of the、uh, vice premier of the China to Pakistan and their agreement of different sign, I think there are state sovereign guarantees that it will continue. And it's not going to affect that has happened in the recent past. Very good, very good.、Uh, let's pray for the the eternity or the fraternity、uh, of China-Pakistan、yeah. relations.、Uh, Madam Wu, I'm sorry, that's all the time we have.、Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Han. Thank you as well. You.、Um, please come back again. And、thank、also, that will do it for this part of the discussion. In the second half of today's hub, we're shining a spotlight on China's impactful green initiatives beyond its own borders. Stay tuned. The impact of climate change is now being felt across every corner of the world as wild weather wreaks havoc across the planet. This summer, we're talking about scorching heat waves and historic floods in China. Meanwhile, the Pacific is getting battered by fiercer than ever typhoons, and those Hawaiian wildfires are still kicking as we speak. The call for action resonates with unprecedented urgency. What is China doing to beef up global climate resiliency? And how does China's leadership contribute to a greener Belt and Road Initiative? To shed light on these pivotal issues, I previously talked to Marco Lambertini, former Director General of the WWF International and currently co-chair of the Belt and Road Initiative Greening Coalition, or BRIGC. Marco, how would you assess the role of China、uh, in not only the greening of the Chinese economy, but also in assuming this global? Uh, green leadership role, if you will. Well, I mean, China is in an absolutely fantastic position to lead、uh, this transition, or to help lead, contribute to, to to this transition in a significant way. First of all,、uh, you are、uh, at the epicenter of the global economy、uh, as a as a major manufacturing uh, and uh, and and more uh, uh, country. Uh, uh, so, you know, the decision that you take. Uh, have repercussions globally, inevitably, through the supply chains、uh, you are part of.、Um, secondly, you also are geopolitically in a position that is close 
to the developing world, uh, uh, you're seen as a, as, a, as, a, as a peer of many developing countries. Uh, and so you're in a position to forge a very different uh, relationship narrative discussion than perhaps the North and the West is uh, in some cases. And I think China has demonstrated by scaling up first domestically and then internationally, uh, for example, renewable energy technology, that you can do that in so many other fields. Uh, one thing which is one of my uh, <laughs> uh, dreams is that China could, could repeat that incredible contribution to the world, a gift to the world of, of uh, uh, reducing the cost of renewable energy in the field of uh, biodegradable plastic, polymers. Plastic is another big issue that we're facing today. It's increasingly dangerous, we understand increasingly dangerous, for human health as well as for ecosystem and uh, environment. And so imagine if China could uh, develop a technology that really come up with polymers which are truly highly biodegradable, and uh, which are now already there almost, but need the investment to be scaled up, crash the price, the world will be ready like it was with solar panels to embrace it. So China has got plenty of opportunities because you have the economy, the size of the country, and the, uh, your position in global supply chains. And we've been talking to some colleagues at the WTO and then treating the, mm -hmm. the plastic, plastic. Uh, industry, you know, overhauling the, the, the plastic industry, adopting more biodegradable stuff is, uh, you know, something very high on their agenda. Well, look, there is a clear parallel. Uh, we are phasing out fossil fuel uh, with renewable energy in terms of energy production. We should phase out fossil fuel-based plastic and move to a different type of polymers, which are much more sustainable and biodegradable. Marco, tell us a bit about the BRIGC. Uh, what is this organization all about and what is it doing now? So this has been obviously an initiative already existing, uh, 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 launched and supported by President Xi at the time of the launch of the BRI. So there was already, <clears throat> as part of this Chinese concept of ecological civilization, there, is, there was already a commitment to make the Belt and Road Initiative uh, green, as green as possible, uh, from the beginning. But now that commitment is even stronger because it's not just about making the BRI green, it's actually about making the BRI contributing to a global green agenda. And then there is the linear infrastructure, which is roads, railways, which are actually having an impact on nature, on natural habitats, on biodiversity. And, uh, and there is a great opportunity here to make sure that actually by not just looking at the imp uh, mitigating the impact of the road, but looking at the implications of the road for the whole landscape, we can actually not only mitigate the impact of the routing of the infrastructure, but actually we can contribute to the conservation, the protection, sustainable development of the entire region where the infrastructure is based. And so, again, a, a net positive outcome, not just uh, uh, limit the damage, but actually do good contribute to a larger conservation of the natural agenda. There's such a thing as a, a traffic light system uh, to rank BRI projects as green, less green, not green at all. Uh, tell us a bit about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, this was a very courageous, uh, bold uh, uh, decision of, of, of BRI uh, Green Coalition, because for the first time injected a, a, a mechanism of scrutiny and, and assessment in a very simple way as well, so it was easy to communicate, to understand, in terms of uh, uh, the impacts, the, imp the level of impact of projects uh, within the system. Uh, now what we need to see, so that's great, 
and, and has been already increasing visibility, transparency and all the rest. What needs to happen now is to refine the traffic light, uh, including also now the new goals about nature and, and uh, that have been approved uh, and agreed recently, as I mentioned earlier, uh, but also uh, then have a mechanism to intervene. Uh, with incentives and disincentives, cost of capital and all the rest that would actually help uh, push the green project and stop the red ones. Yeah. There's something very interesting that I'm, we're paying attention to, that is green technology exchange and transfer uh, that is considered crucial in uh, delivering uh, the promises of the green BRI. Um, uh, do we have any uh, specifics regarding the green technologies exchange and transfer and uh, how are they uh, progressing along the way? Absolutely. I, I mean, technology obviously, <coughs> it, let me say, technology is one part of the solution. Actually, perhaps before technology, you need to actually see the cultural shift that allows to really prioritize the technology for a sustainable development purpose. You know, our history, uh, our relationship with technology is quite uh, mixed. <laughs> Very often we come up with great technology, yeah, yeah. but we don't consider the side effects. I mean, combustion engine, yeah, the typical example, was the, the great revolution of industrialization in, in the, you know, a century ago. And then here we go, with climate change as a consequence of it. So, um, so there is, the, uh, technology needs to be embraced within a cultural context of clear directions on uh, decarbonization and conservation of nature. But there is no doubt that technology transfer and innovation in technology is a big component of the answer to, to sustainability. On energy is obvious. Uh, we have now the technology, thanks honestly to the major investment of China in uh, solar and wind uh, uh, years ago, and now crashing the price, which is making renewable energy truly competitive with fossil fuel, in fact much more smart and, and, effect and effective. So in that sense, boosting renewable energy, transfer of that technology, and the newcomer uh, on hydrogen and, and, and other sources of renewable energy, clean energy, it's, um, it's the way. When it comes to nature, it's about uh, new technology in how you exploit forests, uh, uh, rivers, and, and ocean, uh, or resource in a way that is sustainable. So there are plenty of room for innovation, but as I said earlier, we need to see financing public and private shifting to support that innovation. There's still 1.8, 1.5, trillion dollars spent by in, in, in the shape of public subsidies that actually are still going in supporting the old model. Fossil fuel, chemical agriculture, uh, uh, intensive fishing, etc., etc. That needs to shift. If you don't make that shift, innovation will remain niche and it won't become mainstream. Yeah. Marco, you have been in uh, conservation industry. Actually, you have exercised the conservation leadership for 35 years, right? Uh, through WWF. Unfortunately, with one hand. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, that, that, that's um, this very valuable experience that you can share with some of our audience, maybe, on how exactly did you change attitudes and practices when it comes to conservation? Um, what were the challenges and maybe some of the highlights that uh, you're very content with. Oh, I mean, this would be an interview on its own <laughs> in 35 <laughs> years. But uh, listen, I, I actually, when I speak to young people in particular, because there is a problem, actually. We're facing a problem, a serious problem these days. And many polls are, are highlighting that. A lot of young people are feeling very anxious about the future, very anxious. And one of the key reasons for their anxiety is actually environment, the bad state of the environment that they envisage for the future and the consequences of that. So for me, that has been the biggest uh, uh, 
change over the last uh, few decades in the way we perceive nature. Nature destruction, nature loss, extinction, all the issues, pollution, is not any longer just something people are outraged about or sad about. People are actually worried. And that creates uh, a completely different attitude to the issue. The moral argument that we've been actually, an organization like WF, we were born about moral argument, our duty to coexist with the rest of nature is still very strong. For me, it's super strong for many of us, for many people, but hasn't really managed to change the system and the behaviors the way we want it. When the issue of nature conservation becomes actually material, personal, touches your lives, your economy, your health, then yeah. <laughs> things are taken yeah. more seriously. And that's what I've seen exactly over the last few decades. Nature was taken for granted, was loved, but taken for granted. Now nature is a concern and it's something that we understand. In fact, we understand we depend on nature, frankly, much more than nature depends on us. We aren't going to be the one paying the price, our children. The moral, the moral duty is not on any, any longer about, only about tigers and elephants and whales. So they, have, they have the right to have a space on the planet. It's also about our children. And that makes the argument much more universal and compelling. Very well said. Um, finally, we're marking the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative, something that has been conceived in Astana, Kazakhstan, 10 years ago by the Chinese president there, giving a speech to an audience in Central Asia. 10 years on, um, there are debates about the merits of this project. I guess the jury might, might still be out. But what do you think of this project 10 years on? The jury is still out, of course, uh, but le let's remember, uh, the project is nested in the current economic development model. It's not, uh, it's not broken free from, from that yet. And so, for sure, any infrastructure project to this day, it's still having an unacceptable impact on the environment. But we're seeing movement and progress in the right direction. That's what really, that's what we really, really need to focus on and to accelerate the transition. And that's what the initiative that we are launching today, uh, the second phase, in fact, of the green, uh, Greening of the Belt Road Initiative, is, uh, is, is all about. It's about now, now that we know what we need to do, now we need to apply in the design phase, implementation phase of infrastructure investment projects and, and deliver uh, the outcome that we want. Positive for the economy and the growth, positive for the environment, and, and social development. And I think all this is, um, is, is, is possible. Um, and I can tell for sure that the commitment, the political commitment behind this is, is very strong. That's why we have agreed to join this initiative. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Hub. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. Bye for now.